Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Public school students in Connecticut join millions of others who will continue with online or distance learning for the rest of the academic year. Coming up, we talk with the head of the largest teachers union in Connecticut and the state education commissioner about what this means for students, educators, and parents. Will there be summer school and how should schools prepare for opening eventually this fall? You can join the conversation 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, in a couple of weeks, Governor Ned Lamont's closure order will expire. Many questions remain over how certain businesses like restaurants or hair salons will operate during this pandemic. For perspective on this whole issue of reopening, joining us now on Zoom is Alice Park. She's national health correspondent for Time magazine. Alice, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You wrote a, a recent piece about the questions about reopening. You started the piece talking about one of Japan's most northernmost islands. What happened there when we saw officials easing social distancing? Well, I think that what happened in Hokkaido, um, an island in Japan, is really illustrative of what we might be facing here in the United States as we um, continue this gradual march toward uh, reopening and hopefully getting to some getting back to some semblance of normal normalcy. Um, they did a, a really good job. They did everything right um, on Hokkaido. They uh, were able to test people. They were able to ask people uh, to stay home and to uh, limit the spread of the virus. And their cases started coming down. Um, so when that happened, uh, the governor decided to reopen the reopen the society. Um, businesses were suffering, as, as you can imagine, as they are here in the United States. They rely a lot on agriculture and tourism there, and those businesses and industries were suffering. And so the governor decided to reopen. Unfortunately, when he did, um, cases started to skyrocket again. I uh, believe that at one point uh, they went up by as much as 80% compared to uh, when everyone was under lockdown. So they were faced with a very difficult decision of having to reinstitute the uh, social distancing and lockdown and social isolation policies. So that's really, I think, a lesson for the rest of the world as we um, really try to wrestle with this conflict between the very real pressures from public health and trying to contain this virus and keep the virus from spreading and the very real issues of um, people being able to make a living and economies uh, faltering and being compromised. So we need to be very careful when we talk about reopening and use examples like Hokkaido. It also happened in uh, Germany, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And we have to really look to those cases to better understand how we can reopen in a responsible way and try to meet as many of, the, of these conflicting needs as we can.
You're pointing to this tension between what public health officials and experts are saying and uh, the tension that politicians are facing, hearing from constituents, looking at how the economy um, is uh, really being impacted uh, poorly. Uh, People are worried about uh, their finances and worried about how they're going to get food on the table. When you talk about these other countries, uh, there's a lot of attention here, Alice, on how testing is inadequate. Uh, When these countries started to reopen, what did their testing capabilities look like? Their testing capabilities, I think, um, on the whole, were much better than ours have been. Um, ours is in, is improving um, day by day, week by week, as Dr. Fauci has said. Um, it is getting better. We did falter. And so I think um, the issue with the United States is that we were really playing catch up for a while because uh, we hadn't had the testing infrastructure in place to really um, do the amount of testing that we needed to to get a handle on who was infected and and where the infections were. But it is getting better. And I think um, it's going to be key to make sure that that testing capability is up and running and solid and robust. And those are one of the factors that each governor, each uh, municipality is going to have to look at is that testing capability in their local area before they make decisions about reopening. Social distancing will have to continue at some um, level because we're all waiting for this vaccine, which again will take uh, at least a year, year and a half uh, uh, to uh, be developed. And that's pretty quick compared to uh, vaccines in the past. But let's talk more, Alice, about some of these other tools that you mentioned, um, more widespread testing. But there's other ways that health officials can help contain uh, the spread of this virus uh, through contact tracing. Tell us more about that. Right. So testing doesn't happen on its own. Just knowing who is infected and where the infections are isn't enough. Um, you also have to be able to have some kind of program in place where you you can make sure that those individuals who are positive um, are self-isolating and put in some kind of um, situation where they may not be transmitting the virus to others. So contact tracing is key to that. And that this is really a very basic um, public health epidemiological uh, practice where if you do find someone who is positive, someone does test positive, you then ask that person where he or she has been. Who were they in contact with? Who were their closest contacts? These are most likely family members, friends, um, potentially colleagues at work, uh, so that you can then reach out to those people and test them and understand whether they are positive or not. And so if you think about this, this is more kind of like a ring approach where you widen your ring gradually to um, include as many people as you can who might have been in contact with someone who's positive until you get to the point where you aren't finding any more people who are positive. Um, and that gives you some reassurance that you have potentially identified anyone whom that individual might have infected. With contact tracing, you know, in Connecticut, local health districts have been underfunded. I imagine that's probably a a scenario that's happened in other states, Alice. And so when we're talking about contact tracing, having the right amount of people to go out into the community, at the same time, it's a voluntary program, right? So how do you get people to want to participate and also find people that that are able to track? This is a combination, you're absolutely right. It's a combination of um, both asking people to provide the information, you know, of where they've been. Um, This kind of goes against a lot of um, what we hold dear here in the United States as far as our privacy. Um, But 
this is something that public health experts are really um, well trained to do. So when we talk about people who are going to be conducting this contact tracing, um, they, they will be well trained individuals who are educated and in many cases certified to do this. And they, um, they have ways of, of being able to um, go to people both door to door as well as contact them now um, electronically to try to help um, elicit this information. And there are many programs right now around the United States that are uh, aiming to educate and train more people to um, conduct this type of contact tracing. Because as you can imagine, it's, it's not gonna be easy. You're hearing on Zoom here on Where We Live, Alice Park. She's National Health Correspondent for Time Magazine. As we talk more about her recent story about the questions that officials in local government, state government across our country have to ask uh, before reopening. Uh, Here in Connecticut, our governor's closure order expires May 20th. There has been talk about having some restaurants maybe open outdoor uh, seating, uh, maybe hair salons opening. But the guidelines for how to do that safely still haven't uh, been uh, figured out yet. Uh, Alice, again, when we're talking about, um, you know, essentially hiding from this virus, this through the social distancing, physical distancing, as we wait for a vaccine, um, when people are vaccinated, that helps herd immunity. But until then, what do we know about some of the treatments that, uh, that are out there that may help people who are trying to recover from the coronavirus? Well, there are a bunch of studies going on uh, looking at different types of treatments for treating COVID-19. I think the most exciting right now, and that's made a lot of news, is a drug called remdesivir. Um, This is something that is not approved for treating any other disease. It's still um, an experimental drug that was being studied actually for another viral infection um, known as Ebola. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that the developers, uh, the drug makers knew that in the lab, at least this drug, this experimental drug also showed some activity against coronaviruses like SARS and MERS. And of course, COVID-19 is caused by a coronavirus. So there's a lot of excitement now and studies going on um, conducted by the National Institutes of Health and around the world as well. And uh, most recently, there's been some encouraging news suggesting that people who are taking the drug um, do seem to improve more quickly than those who are given a placebo. Um, It's still early, the full results haven't come out yet, but it's very encouraging. And it was enough for the US uh, Food and Drug Administration, which um, is a regulatory agency that oversees drugs, Uh, to issue what they call an emergency use authorization, which means the drug is not fully approved, but given this emergency situation that we have for COVID-19, doctors can ask for it and give patients uh, this drug called remdesivir uh, on a case-by-case basis. So it's promising, it's exciting, but um, we'll have to see as more people get the drug um, Mm -hmm. how well and what kind of uh, effect it might have on the disease. There are other treatments that are also looking at not tackling the virus itself, but uh, attacking some of the symptoms that occur during infection. So one of the the major issues with COVID-19 are uh, respiratory problems that occur as the disease advances. And that's really caused by kind of an overactive immune system when the body's immune system sees a virus and really revs up um, and causes a what they call a cytokine storm. So it's a really revved up and hyper um, 
activated immune response. And there are a lot of uh, interesting studies looking at drugs that can that can really uh, suppress that response and potentially um, lessen the course of the disease. Alice, we've been hearing also in our state, our governor and others talking about antibody or serological testing to find out who's had COVID-19 and, and when they've recovered, how much of that gives them an immunity. What do we know about those antibody tests? So the antibody tests are different from the tests that are used to um, detect active infection. Um, the tests that are used to detect active infection are actually looking for traces of the viruses. Um, genetic signatures. And the antibody tests are looking for the body's response to the virus. So it's looking for those antibodies that the immune system generates um, to fight the virus. So that if you test positive on an antibody test, that tells you that you have either recently been infected um, or have at some point in the past been infected. It's not clear yet what those antibodies mean. So um, the studies are still ongoing to understand how protective those antibodies are. Does that mean that if you have them and you get exposed again to the virus, you won't get infected? Um, not clear. We, we don't know the answer to that. And, and researchers are, are really uh, working hard to try to understand better what those antibodies mean. But in the meantime, they are also being looked at as a potential treatment. Um, you might have heard about some of these um, plasma-based treatments where people who have recovered from COVID-19 infections are donating their plasma and the antibodies that they have generated are being infused into patients to see if it could help them also to lessen the course of their disease. Mm -hmm. So just because uh, these antibody tests are out there and showing that some people um, may have uh, some um, antibodies from f against a COVID-19, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, everyone can get herd immunity pre-vaccine. It's still too early to say. Too early to say. And I think the idea of saying, um, if you think about it, there's really, and Dr. Fauci put this so well, there's two ways of getting um, this herd immunity. One is to uh, get infected and to recover and generate, have your body generate the uh, natural immune response to it. However, um, that's that's not realistic or advisable since um, this disease is also uh, quite lethal and, and it can cause some very serious complications. So um, right now we're looking still at a very, very small percentage of people who have been infected um, with the virus and then recovered. So I don't think that's the way that we're going to look at for getting herd immunity. The vaccine is really um, going to be the more sustainable and longer term solution to that. And given all of what we've discussed, Alice, as states look to reopening, it's it's really going to have to go uh, from, a, I guess, a, a hyper-local level, like what's happening within a certain community. And if uh, certain things are reopened and uh, more cases develop, more hospitalizations, they might have to tamp that down. They will. It's going to be a trial by error, I think. And, and, there's gonna, and that's where testing is going to be key because Testing will help you to determine, are there going to be flare-ups, where those flare-ups are, um, and also help you to isolate those individuals who are infected so that it doesn't spread further. The whole idea as uh, communities reopen is to keep those flare-ups and the clusters of cases as small as possible. You've been hearing Alice Park, again, national health correspondent for Time magazine. We'll tweet out a link to her recent story about, again, the questions that, that state officials uh, should be asking when you consider what public health officials have been saying about containing COVID-19. Alice, thank you so much for joining us here on Where We Live. My pleasure.
Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, schools in Connecticut will remain closed through June 30th. We're going to talk with the leader of Connecticut's largest teachers union about that decision. And the state education commissioner will join us, too. Now, what questions do you have for them? Are you a parent or a local school teacher, a local principal? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Most parents were expecting the news. On Tuesday, Governor Lamont announced schools will remain closed for the rest of the academic year. Are families prepared for another two months of distance learning? And how are Educator is preparing for the eventual reopening of schools in the fall. You can join our conversation, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Jeff Leak. He's president of the Connecticut Education Association, the largest teachers union in Connecticut. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you had written an op-ed before Governor Lamont uh, again announced the, the schools will be closed up through June 30th. So what was your reaction when you heard the news and what have you been hearing from your members? Uh, I, my members were extremely gratified by the governor's uh, decision, anxious. They were anxious about, you know, when we were going to come to that decision. Uh, but we were uh, uh, thinking it was absolutely the right decision. Our, our teachers um, t- took the decision probably in, in two ways. One, a little disappointed that, you know, sometime in March was their last uh, personal interaction with their students, uh, but but certainly uh, understanding that for safety reasons, uh, and, and again, going back to uh, the earlier part of the show, um, we're, we're happy that, you know, we're gonna take some time to figure out how we get, how we get moving forward. Again, another two months of distance learning before we uh, talk about uh, what that means for parents and students. Uh, Commissioner Cardona will be joining us in just a few minutes. I wanted to talk more about uh, as we're looking to the future, because eventually uh, everyone wants to see schools reopen. You went through um, some of the things that need to happen when schools reopen. Can you walk us through what school may look like in the fall, uh, given what we're thinking about safety, social distancing, cleaning, again, keeping both students and teachers safe? Absolutely. Uh, We are concerned that at this moment, not all of our schools in Connecticut, perhaps some are, not all of our schools in Connecticut would be ready to open. And we wanna make sure that over the next couple of months that happens. So the cleaning issue is, is clearly one. Uh, we've had issues with healthy schools or unhealthy schools, I should say, uh, for the past few years. We've uh, had it as a talking, uh, something we've been talking about with legislators. Um, so the cleaning is very important uh, to us. Then there's the issue of uh, protective gear for, for both students and teachers. Um, Who's going to re, uh, supply the uh, mask? Uh, do we need to wear gloves? Is that something that needs to take place? Uh, and then there's the issue, clearly, um, schools in some ways are <laughs> too, too similar to cruise ships, i.e. Mm-hmm. a lot of people getting together very close to one another, eating together, 
all those things, uh, we need to make sure that teachers, administrators, and yes, parents too, uh, are part of the conversation about how we're going to be able to move forward come September. So let's break that, that break down that um, a little bit more, uh, Jeff Leak. Again, uh, when we think about all the students that are in a particular school building, does that mean you may see staggered class times? Are we going to start seeing instead of a full day of school, maybe a half day of school because you want to limit the number of students in a building at one time? We hope that that's part of the conversation. We know that that complicates things. Clearly, schools are part of our whole economic uh, engine in, in Connecticut and across the nation. We understand that parents uh, of our school children need to be probably getting back to work as well. Um, who's going to take care of those kids if we don't have them in school every day? But, but the true issue, again, is how can we make this happen uh, and make sure that uh, we don't we don't spread this virus. We don't make it worse. Uh, I think for us, the worst thing that could happen would be that we open in September. And as your previous guest just said, when that's when places have reopened in, in other uh, uh, countries, all of a sudden we see a, a spike uh, in this virus. So we want to make sure that we don't reopen schools, see a spike and then have to clear, you know, quickly close again. Uh, that's what we're concerned about. We want to be part of that conversation. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live. Uh, my guest on Zoom, Jeff Leak, president of the Connecticut Education Association, the largest teachers union in Connecticut. Here's the number to call in, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sky's calling from Cheshire. Sky, you're on the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I had a question. So what is the hope, I guess, in keeping schools closed, and where is that impact going to be when we have all of the parents returning to work and we have summer camps opening? Uh, thank you, Sky, for that question. That is a big question, uh, Jeff Leak, because uh, even if we want to keep schools closed and students and teachers safe, a lot of parents uh, may be working at places that, you know, they have reopened. They need to go back uh, to work. And so where, you know, what conversations are happening between uh, your organization and state officials and the commissioners about uh, this gap in providing care for students? So we have members on the reopen uh, uh, task force that's uh, that Governor Lamont uh, began and also on the regional ones that are out there. We're hoping that those conversations are taking place. We are looking for guidance for those. We know that uh, not every school district and not every region probably will have to have the same uh, kind of protocols in place, but we wanna make sure that again, we're part of that conversation. Please understand, our teachers want to get back into contact with their students. And we understand that, you know, parents need to work. Uh, but again, um, we, we don't want to just kind of reopen as we were before and, and, and perhaps make things worse. Um, we, 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 we've contained this to some extent. We're on the right trajectory. Uh, we want to make sure we stay on that trajectory and do not restart uh, anything that uh, we were hoping to stop by closing schools in the first place.
You can join our conversation again, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when we t- think about uh, distance learning, uh, there were some hiccups in terms of of certain districts didn't have uh, the right equipment uh, to send out to kids who may not have computers at home, or the fact that all these teachers had to quickly shift, uh, Jeff, uh, to thinking about how do we connect with our students on online and help them retain uh, what they've learned. What have you been hearing from your teachers about the workload? Because their kids are home too. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the workload is one interesting topic when we talk to our, uh, our members. Um, <clears throat> many of them uh, um, are, are working way beyond what they ever uh, were doing before, uh, you know, starting at seven o'clock in the morning and ending at seven or eight o'clock at night. And, and some of them, of course, are dealing with their own children at home, uh, their own children uh, needing help from, uh, from mom and dad to uh, get their lessons done. So it, it's been, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, I, I just send out my, my absolute thanks for all the ways that our teachers have been out there working with parents, uh, working with their students as best they can uh, to get this done. But you've hit on a very important point, which is the discrepancy of resources that are available from one community to the next in in Connecticut. Uh, Some of our folks had already done some training. They were already thinking about uh, some distance learning opportunities, uh, but others uh, clearly um, were nowhere near there and, and, and are still having trouble trying to figure out how to make it happen to the best of their ability. Mm. Um, when we talk about educational equity, even the thought that, uh, say, schools reopen and certain districts may have more resources and more room to have, uh, say, uh, different spacing for lunchtime and classroom uh, seating, uh, but then, or even having adequate PPE or cleaning, but then other districts not having that, and then you might see a flare-ups in uh, these infections. I mean, it's it's very problematic, uh, Jeff, and and you can understand the anxiety that people are feeling about all of this we we certainly understand it and and we certainly want to work with everyone uh including uh, the state department of education parents administrators to try to figure out how we can restart school in whatever way it needs to be restarted Joining us now uh, on Zoom is Dr. Miguel Cardona. He's commissioner of the Connecticut State Department of Education. Uh, Dr. Cardona, welcome back to the show. Hi, good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, So we've been talking with Jeff Leake, president of the Connecticut Education Association, about uh, what he and his members would like to see uh, for supporting teachers and uh, students. But from your perspective, Dr. Cardona, uh, this decision to keep schools closed through June 30th, it it wasn't a surprise uh, for many. But did you hear from other districts who may uh, maybe be on the eastern side of the state who thought, you know, maybe we could go back uh, for uh, the remainder of the year? How did you come to the decision that you did? Sure. Uh, as you said, it wasn't surprising, but as one former student of mine put it, it wasn't surprising, but it was still devastating. Um, it was still difficult to to kind of wrap your head around the fact that uh, we wouldn't be going back into our schoolhouses. We wouldn't be going back to those things that we value so much, those experiences and traditions that we hold uh, close to our hearts. I, I did speak to superintendents throughout uh, different parts of the state, and you know, there was still reservation with regard to bringing students back because we know staff members, um, you know, travel from different parts of the state. 
So it, it, it's not like the school community is made up of only people that live in that community. So there was still uh, uh, some considerable uh, reservation about reopening too early. Uh, Robert's calling from Avon. Robert, what's your question for the commissioner, Commissioner Cardona or Jeff Leake? Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm curious um, to what degree the decisions in Connecticut about how and when to reopen the schools are influenced by decisions uh, being made on that topic in uh, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts. Um, are, are we in communication with the uh, school commissioners in those states? Do we just sort of watch their decisions from afar? Uh, how does that work? Thank you, Robert. Uh, Dr. Cardona. Thank you for the question, Robert. Uh, I'm in communication with uh, the entire uh, Council of uh, Chief School State Officers. So there's uh, the 50 commissioners from throughout the country. We have calls twice a week to discuss uh, topics. Um, I have been in communication with the commissioners of the surrounding uh, states. Um, and I think our decision is really based a little bit more on the context of Connecticut and uh, the, the trends in Connecticut, but we do have conversations about what they're planning. Uh, Rhode Island let me know when they were planning on closing down. Um, we have similar uh, situations and, and we bounce ideas off each other. Um, but, you know, the decision ultimately uh, rests on the governor uh, for the state. And, um, you know, we inform the governor what our recommendations are. Uh, we should mention, I, I think you had mentioned this the other day, Dr. Cardona, wasn't Connecticut like the 40th or 46th state to make this announcement that they too would close the end of, to, through the end of the year? Yes, I believe it was 40, 46. Yeah. <laughs> so Connecticut took its time. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I wanted to go back to some of the points that Jeff Leak raised about, again, we've got another two months of distance learning, but everyone is hopefully crossing their fingers that school will we eventually reopen in the fall. Uh, when we think about reopening school, some of the things that school, how school will change uh, from the, the schedule that many of us are used to, uh, staggered start times being one of them, uh, maybe changing up how a school building is used so you have less students in a particular classroom you know how are you coming you know coming up with these kinds of options how are you talking through with uh, the many school districts that we have in our state dr cardona to come up with a way to make it safe thank you we're, we're fortunate to have uh, an education subcommittee that has perspective from different parts of the education sphere right but we're also benefiting from uh, what we established at the department. Uh, it's called a, a regional education advisory team. So there are six regional advisory teams from uh, different parts of the state that have members, they have teachers, superintendents, parents, um, other educators on the team to come up with strategies. Um, and they've recently submitted a, a survey that was done, a thought exchange survey that got over 30,000 responses to try to bring forward some of the best ideas. We also have, uh, we're doing landscape analysis of what some of the best strategies are, not only nationally, but internationally, uh, to try to see what options exist. And then ultimately those are gonna be called into the best practices by the Education Reopen Committee uh, for communication to districts. Um, so, so they can consider how that works in their communities. But keep in mind, you know, Connecticut, even though it's a small state, we have such variance in what some of our school experiences are. So for example, I spoke to a superintendent 
last week who has a high school of 200 students. Um, I, I visited Danbury High School about two months ago, and they have 3,000 students. So it's going to look different in different places to some extent. So we, we're going to provide some opportunities for districts to see what works for them um, while trying to guide them and make sure that the health standards are, are clear throughout the state. But how do you get this all done, Dr. Cardona? Because again, schools had to shift quickly to online learning. Uh, I know the current reported, I think last week, there are many school districts that are having trouble connecting with students to see if they're even able to do the online work or maybe they're not doing it. And so we're very uh, into the present day. How do we get to the next day and then thinking about uh, what's going to happen this summer and then uh, trying to keep it safe uh, in the fall? I mean, it's a lot to deal deal with, and I'm just wondering how you, you're able to do that effectively. It, it is a lot to deal with, but as I said earlier, you know, the, we have strong, we have a strong team at the State Department of Education. We have strong partners, um, you know, Jeff being one of them. We have uh, committed educators throughout the state of Connecticut that are uh, rolling up their sleeves and, and working with us to try to identify best distance learning practices or sharing best ideas. I mean, if you go on the State Department of Education website now, you'll see over 30 to 40 webinars that were created to support districts. And what we're noticing now is districts are sharing best practices and we're highlighting it and we're giving them a platform to share with other districts. So it really is a, a community of one and education, I, I, I'd like to think. And uh, so it's not, it doesn't bottleneck with one person. It really is uh, different people coming in with different uh ideas. Distance learning, we need to continue to improve that. As much as I want to say that on September 1st, all students are going to go back to school, the reality is that's going to be very dependent on the health patterns, the health trends. And we have to be prepared if there is an outbreak, some suggest that there could be a second wave, that we are able to safely close schools again. So I'm hoping that if that does happen, our second wave of distance learning or remote learning is better than our first. And we have to continue to work on connectivity. We have to continue to work on providing devices for students. And we have to continue to work on making sure that the materials that we provide for our students and our teachers are quality so that they're not having to reinvent the wheel. They have enough to deal with teaching with their own children at home uh, for us to ask them to start making things up uh, as they go along. You can join our conversation with Dr. Miguel Cardona, Commissioner of the Connecticut State Department of Education. Also with us on Zoom, Jeff Leake, President of the Connecticut Education Association, the largest teachers union in the state. The number to call 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you mentioned support for teachers, support for students. What can school districts uh, do better in terms of supporting parents through all of this, Dr. Cardona, many parents who still have to work. Yes, parents have become in, in some ways a de facto uh, teacher's assistants uh, at home too. Uh, you know, it's been challenging. We're, we're actually developing a webinar for, fa for families and for parents. Um, when I'm done with this call, I have to participate in, in developing a video for that. Just to kind of guide some guidance for parents and some, some tips on you know, just pacing yourselves and not feeling the immense pressure to uh, have the student replicate what they were doing before COVID-19. That's, that's 
sometimes the, the pressure that many students or many families are feeling that they have to do exactly what was being done prior to COVID-19. No, this is not a long-term solution to education. Right now, what we're trying to do is provide um, some stop gaps so that students are accessing uh, learning and uh, doing so in a way that keeps them going. But we understand that we can't expect parents to be their classroom teachers, nor can we think that parents who have to work are able to do that. So we wanna just share that information with families. We plan on doing that through some webinar conference that we'll make available on our website very soon. We're going to continue our conversation here on Where We Live in just a couple of minutes. You can join us as well, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Again, my guest today, Dr. Miguel Cardona, Connecticut's uh, Commissioner of the State Department of Education, and Jeff Leake, President of the Connecticut Education Association. If you're a parent, uh, educator, you can join us as well. We'll be right back after a short break. is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With us today on Zoom, Jeff Leake, president of the Connecticut Education Association, the largest teachers union in our state. Also, Dr. Miguel Cardona, commissioner of the Connecticut State Department of Education. If you have a question for them, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I wanted to uh, ask you, Dr. Cardona, we know that there's a, an issue with achievement gap and educational disparities in our state. When we think about, again, all of these different school districts and uh, different income levels, different resources, is the State Department of Ed thinking about a way to measure the learning that will be lost because of the pandemic? You know, we'll get to that assessing where the students are uh, eventually to uh, try to best identify how to appropriate resources um, and supports. Uh, right now, it's really about trying to give access to students. Um, you know, I think as we get into some routine and cadence back into the school year, it's important to see what our students lost so that we could accelerate any learning recovery that needs to happen. Um, you know, it, it, it helps us identify also the important work that we continue to have to make sure that equity and access undergirds everything that we do as an agency and as a state. Jeff Leake, I wanted to get your uh, response to that question because I'm sure teachers, uh, a lot of pressure on them to help the students uh, get to a certain learning level and how that's really been, uh, you know, just thrown to the wind because everyone's dealing with this situation uh, in different places remotely. Um, how do you respond to um, how teachers should think about learning loss uh, when students eventually come back to school? So I, I think we are very interested in trying to figure that out and trying to say, okay, here's what we need to do in order to continue uh, this year. For example, I, I spent much of my time in the elementary school. I taught fifth and sixth grade. Um, if I was a sixth grade teacher now uh, and, and I got my new students uh, from fifth grade in September, the first thing I would begin to do was to kind of figure out where they are, uh, what they 
what they what they got <laughs> that that they uh, normally would get, but then also what what is missing. Should I should I say so? Uh, for for us, we're we're very interested in trying to say okay, we need to figure out where students are right now, and then we need to adjust. Um, again, going back to my experience as a sixth grade teacher, I wouldn't expect that I would begin uh, this coming school year the same way I began uh, all my others, uh, because students, although they've been hopefully participating, uh, do not have all of the uh, instruction that they normally would get between uh, March and June. So it's a very important uh, uh, concept. We hope that, uh, Folks don't think that, uh, for example, um, administering a standardized test to the entire student population in Connecticut is going to tell us too much uh, because it's not. This is going to have to be done by teachers uh, working with their colleagues, trying to say, okay, what's the best assessment for our students? How can we figure out where they are? How can we move forward with instruction that benefits them? Uh, looking at some of the different ways uh, schools could get back into session this fall, we had a, an educator from the Yukon School of Ed on the other week, and she mentioned uh, looping, this idea that uh, because students have missed three months of, of their grade, would school districts be able to get some consistency where kids could go back to school and they have that same teacher? Is that something that could be uh, looked at? I think it is looked at right now in some situations, mostly in the early elementary grades. Uh, I, I'm not sure personally, uh, and our teachers seem to be uh, responding as well with this, that it's the solution that we can look at going forward. For example, at, um, um, going back to my own experience, um, I, I, as a sixth grade teacher, might not be, be remembering what needs to be done uh, with uh, with students um, uh, from the grade before, we think it's best to kind of move students along, and 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 have teachers teaching what they are comfortable with, what they know, and what they're ready to move forward with, especially as they begin to develop some uh, additional concepts regarding distance learning. Before we get to the fall, there's summer, um, and Dr. Miguel Cardona, I'm wondering, I believe you've mentioned that there may be instances of, of summer school. Can you talk, talk us through how that would work and uh, where you would see the need for that? Sure. So <clears throat> the goal is to provide safe opportunities for students to re-engage in learning, especially students who have, uh, whose uh, experience with distance learning doesn't really have an impact on, as much of an impact on their ability to, to continue the skills. I'm thinking about students with special needs or students that um, have summer programming so that their skills don't regress even further. Um, I, I, I get emails from f families and parents uh, that have children with autism and the importance of maintaining some routine and structure for these students is critically important. So we are planning with the reopen committee uh, to discuss what it looks like, how to maintain safety and health uh, while we reopen our schools. And we hope to have something ready for the governor uh, later this month. Uh, we're thinking in the next couple of weeks, we wanna have some guidance for summer schools so that schools uh, could potentially reopen the summer uh, in small numbers to get students back in. Um, keeping in mind that any reopening plan must also have a part of it, a phase down plan if it's unsafe to, to continue. But we do plan on looking at summer school as an option for, for the students mm -hmm. in, uh, 
in Connecticut. It wouldn't be for all students, but it would be for students that the district deems to be the highest priority for returning. Well, when we talk about discussions that you and others are having with the governor, how do you bring up the importance of extra funding that will be needed to help these school districts, whether it's summer school or if they decide in the fall, maybe there's going to be extended school days or ways to, to help a students catch up? We know that local towns and cities are already stretched pretty thin dealing with pandemic response. So how much will this all cost, uh, Dr. Cardona? Right. You know, I want to be sensitive to the realities in communities. Um, you know, tax revenue, um, contingency funds have all been used to combat this pandemic that we're all facing. We're all, we all have to be a part of a team. With that said, I, I want to make sure that we don't lose the opportunity to communicate the importance of our, the fact that our students need more. Uh, our kids need more, not less, right? So when we're thinking about, you know, stimulus packages and we're thinking about making sure that certain sectors don't fall under, we have to think the same way about education. We have to think the same way about education because we know education serves as a, as a foundation for a lot of the success of a community. Um, we have to make sure that when we have uh, funding that's earmarked for uh, education and, and CARES Act funding, for example, that we're, we're talking about getting more uh, laptops or devices in the hands of kids. We're talking about improving connectivity. We're talking about giving social emotional support and, and maybe more access to social workers because, as you know, some of the students that are coming back are going to be coming back after having experienced tr major trauma. Mm -hmm. And we have to be available to support the students with mm -hmm. their needs as they come into the building. So the equity and access argument can has never needed to be louder than it is today. We just have a few minutes left. Uh, Judy on Facebook writes, New York Governor Cuomo has been talking about partnering with Bill Gates for the future of education. Uh, she wants to know, uh, Dr. Cardona, are, are you guys thinking about this in Connecticut? I know that there is philanthropic efforts to get laptops uh, to students, but other ways of helping fund uh, education that's going to have a lot more challenges before us. Right. Yeah, we remain uh, focused on the goals to provide quality public education in Connecticut. And we have seen in Connecticut some tremendous private uh, public partnerships uh, and folks in Connecticut have stepped up to support it. As far as any specific plan to partner with one uh, versus another, we're, we're not there in Connecticut, but we are working with partners in philanthropy who are supporting the, the overall goals of the, of the agency and of our state. And th their help is greatly appreciated during this time of need. Jeff Leek, president of the Connecticut Education Association, I wanted you to chime in on the question about additional resources for school districts. Uh, your members represent uh, teachers and staff from all over the state, whether it's a wealthy school district or not. Is there a real concern that the state won't be able to help fund uh, some of the challenges uh, moving forward? Absolutely, uh, there is. And, and we are trying to uh have our members initiate conversations with our local leaders uh, as well as state uh, legislators and so forth to say, as, as the commissioner just said, when we reopen in, in September, uh, we're probably going to need more resources than, than we had before. And I especially want to uh, kind of chime in on the idea that social emotional support is probably going to be as important as instructional support. And we want to make sure that it's there. Our national organization is working with uh, folks in uh, Washington, D.C., trying to move forward 
uh, something like, again, the CARES package, but, but certainly targeted right on education. We need, again, billions of dollars probably to make sure that districts and, and states uh, across our United States have the money they need in order to make sure that the resources are there for our students. We are going to need more resources, not less, and, and somehow we got to figure out how to get that funding for those resources for our students. Dr. Cardona, before we run out of time, a caller earlier asked how the state's going to navigate daycare options when parents have to go back to go back to work, but their students may still uh, be at home. Tell us just briefly, I know you've been collaborating with the Commissioner of Early Education, uh, Beth Bai. Uh, what can parents look to in the next couple of weeks with more guidance on daycare options? Right. Um, you know, the daycares have not stopped since this started. Uh, we had many healthcare workers and um, first, first responders ha- who have children have an immediate need for uh, care options for their youngsters. And that's only going to increase as we start reopening Connecticut slowly and people have to get back to work. So those efforts are still underway. Uh, as you mentioned, Commissioner Bai has been doing yeoman's work, maintaining those, maintaining safety standards, communicating with those centers. And, you know, as the summer progresses and camps are available too, um, parents are going to have some other options as well. Well, I want to thank Dr. Miguel Cardona for joining us here on Where We Live. He's the commissioner of the State Department of Education. Dr. Cardona, thank you. Thank you for, for your time, for the invitation, and and for the advocacy on behalf of the education in Connecticut. Take care, everyone. Thank you. And also Jeff League, president of the Connecticut Education Association. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us on Where We Live. Uh, this programming note, we're going to have Governor Ned Lamont, Lamont join us again on Monday on Where We Live. And tomorrow, we're going to have Jerrica Brown on Where We Live, winner of this year's Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. I hope you join us for that conversation. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for listening.